If you have your Bible this morning, turn please to John chapter 21. We've been talking about experiencing God. We've been talking about experiencing the Lord. Uh, what, does that, what does that mean? We've been worshiping the Lord this morning, and I don't know if you have experienced what the Holy Spirit is doing in your heart, but I hope that he is doing something great, because I have loved what's happening in our midst as the worship just grows and grows. It's not about a style of music, folks. It's, folks, it's about pointing people to Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. Experiencing God, loving enough to obey is where we're going this morning, loving enough to obey. How do you really get to know someone? How do you really get to know someone well? One way is to work alongside them, is to come alongside someone and and start working with them. Uh, The premise of Undercover Boss, a a television show that's on now called Undercover Boss. Anybody here ever seen Undercover Boss? Yeah. Uh, The bosses go undercover and they work alongside their employees. And some of them started out in some of the most menial jobs. And as they've worked along with those those, uh, people, they've worked themselves up into the company and they've forgotten what it's like. And they go back and work alongside some of these people. And what happens? They have a new appreciation for the employees. They have a new, they have a new love for the, the employees, and, and there's a new respect for them, and they understand their struggles. But the unexpected benefit, I think, for the undercover bosses is this. The, the people that are working alongside them see their boss come in, and at first they make fun of them because they can't do the job. Have you ever noticed the undercover bosses can never do the jobs that they're paying someone a whole lot less to do? And the, the employers are like, yeah, this guy will never cut it in our company. This guy will never make it. He's not, you know, this guy's not worth a whole lot of money. But when they realize that it was a boss coming back to try to, to experience what it's like to be with them, they have a new love and appreciation and a loyalty to the bosses many times. And our boss, the king of kings, came down to live with us. Then to cover Savior. And he came alongside, and he worked with us, and he lived with us, and we got to experience him. And the problem was Jesus wasn't bad at anything he did. He was perfect at everything he did. Can you imagine having your child that, well, you don't even go there. You know, the little brother saying, you know, my older brother's perfect. Well, in Jesus' brother's case, that really was true. And how frustrating would that have been? But the Lord came alongside us. In John 14, 23, this is is the message that Jesus says. Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. Well, well, wait a second. Where did obedience come in here? Well, if you get to love and respect the person, you have loyalty for them, then you want to do what they want you to do. If you love me, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. None of the undercover bosses that I've ever seen have ever gone to live with the employees. Now, that would be a whole different show, wouldn't it? But the Lord says, I'm going to come and live among you. Henry Blackaby says, if we have a problem obeying the Lord, we really have a love problem. If we have a problem with obedience to the Lord, we really have a love problem. And if you want to experience the Lord as we love him and we serve him and we grow in him, you will experience him in a way that you can't even fathom. You say, well, pastor, I don't understand that. Well, then let's go to John 21. And in John 21, we're going to define. How do we define How do we define obedience? It's going to come right up. How do we define obedience? John 21, verses 1 through 11. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. Again, this is the Sea of Galilee. Last week, we saw the first time that that Jesus was uh, around the Sea of Galilee. He sat in one of the boats. There was a miracle. He was speaking with Peter, and he called the disciples. He's back there. This is after the death 
the, the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is at the very end of his life here on earth. Afterward, Jesus again appeared to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way, and it names them off. Simon Peter, you got both names in case you didn't know which one. Simon is Peter. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, or the twin. Uh, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee. The sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not recognize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw, and and again, they're out away. So he says, throw your net, throw your net on on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he'd taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals. Literally, it's a charcoal fire. It's a barbecue grill, okay? They're having a barbecue. He's having a barbecue. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. And Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish. These are fishermen. They will tell you not only how many fish, but what size fish that they caught. It was, a, it was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. How do we define disobedience or obedience? I think the first thing that we have to ask is, do we base our obedience on circumstances? Do we define obedience in the sense that as long as everything works out, as long as everything goes right, as long as, long as everything lines up okay, then I'll obey the Lord. As long as God gives me everything I pray for, I'm going to obey him. And that's the problem because Peter is here, and it's easy to criticize Peter. I mean, Peter's the one that when Jesus is in the garden, he takes his sword out and he cuts the servant's ear off. Okay, maybe he's not a good shot, but he was trying to, to lop somebody's head off. He was trying to defend the master. He was trying to defend Jesus. He's the only one who did. It's easy to criticize Peter because he denied the Lord three times, but, but he's also the one that, that got it right more times when he said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's easy to criticize him. But after Jesus, uh, Peter denied Jesus, what do you think Peter thought Jesus would do for him? Even though he was raised from the dead, even though it tells us in Mark that the angels came back, and when the angels were talking to the ladies, they said, go back and tell his disciples, and I love Mark says, and Peter, go back and tell the disciples, be sure you tell Peter that Jesus Christ is alive. And Peter thought, well, he's alive, but He'll never have anything to do with me because he promised, I, I promised him I would not let him down. And he saw me in the courtyard. It says that Jesus turned and saw Peter just as the, the cock crew, crowed the, th- the third time. The rooster crowed three times. And Peter saw him as he had denied him three times. And Peter's brokenhearted. Christ's cru- crucifixion had dashed their hopes. And the other disciples were with him because two disciples on the road to Emmaus, you remember what they said in Luke 24, 21, he says, we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. 
We had hoped, and our hopes are crushed, our hopes are dashed. And that's why sometimes when we're talking about obedience, we say, but our hopes have been crushed. Our plans have been, have been crushed. Our plans are, are just torn apart. Last week in Luke 5.10, Jesus says, from now on, this is a turning point. He says, listen, this should be your pivot point, and from now on you should go in a different direction. But, but they couldn't. There's a lasting change, not temporary, but, but just like Peter and just like these disciples, we fall back into default mode, the factory settings, the old nature. And we see this. It's not just Peter. It, this happens time after time after time. In the Old Testament, there's a story about Samuel. Samuel has been anointed as the king, and I'm, I'm sorry, Saul has been anointed as the king, and Samuel has said to, to Saul, hey, listen, you're going to be the king, but you're going to have some problems and he said, you need to wait for me. There's this army coming, and, and I know it's coming, and you're going to go out to battle, and God's going to give you the battle, but you need to wait for me. You need to wait seven days. So Samuel told Saul this. Saul does not wait the whole seven days. He gets to the seventh day. Samuel's not there. He said, the preacher's late. Since the preacher's late, let's just go ahead. And he offers a sacrifice that Samuel is supposed to offer. He got impatient. He disobeyed. The circumstances weren't right. And and look at what it says in 1 Samuel 13, verses 10 and 11. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to meet him. And look at what Samuel says. What have you done? Do you ever look at your own life, and you've gotten impatient with God? The circumstances don't line line up. It it doesn't seem to be the, the way it should be, and nothing is going the way you think it should go. And at that point, you get impatient with God, and you just say, I'm just going to go ahead and do this on my own. And, and the Lord says, what have you done? Will you wait for me? And I think it's, it's especially poignant. I, I mentioned that there was a charcoal fire. I have a quirk. I, I don't know if any of you have this quirk. I have sensory problems with certain food smells. Anybody else have that problem? You go to a movie, and, and the, you go walk into the foyer, and they're popping popcorn. And Kathy doesn't even ask me if, you, if you're going to have popcorn. She says, what size popcorn? And she doesn't ask you more if you want extra butter on it. I just go, yes. Because I smell that popcorn and I smell that fake butter. I don't know what it is. It's probably horrible for me. And I can eat my weight in that stuff. I have another sensory problem, though, that when I smell a charcoal fire, I walk the dog around our neighborhood And Kathy will tell you that there are nights that I come in and I'll say, we need to cook something out tonight. Somebody lit up the charcoal fire. I could smell the charcoal. They don't even have have anything on it yet, but, but the grill is going. Let's get the grill out. There's only two places in the Bible where charcoal fire is mentioned. One is in John 18, 18, where Peter's in the courtyard and a servant, he's warming himself, and it says specifically by a charcoal fire. And Peter's denying the Lord. And he comes ashore, and he comes up to the Lord, and he smells the charcoal. And what did he think? This can't be happening again. This can't be, it's such a pungent smell. I can smell the charcoal. And the Lord's, he's frying fish, or he's cooking fish. This can't be happening again. Do we base obedience 
on circumstances. Number two, do we base obedience on logic? Do we base it on logic? In Luke chapter 5, in the account, the men who were pro-fishermen, they, they fished all night and they caught nothing. All night, same thing. Is it logical, if you've been fishing all night, that if you just stay right where you are, but just throw the net on the other side? Now, this is not a, this is not a line in a lure. I'm not much of a fisherman. Uh, I've, I've, had, I've made a couple of references to fishing, and people have come to me and they say, do you like to fish? I said, that's immaterial. I'm not any good at fishing. I like to fish, but the fish are in no danger when I'm in a boat with a, with a rod and reel. There is no danger of any fish being harmed in, the, in this incident. But they're sitting in a boat, and if you've got a net and you drop it on one side or the other, the fish don't just stay on one side of the boat. They swim. It makes no sense logically for them just to drop it on the other side. And they caught 153 why is the number 153? I have all these commentaries, and they were making all of these comments about it's this sign, and it's this, and it's that. Let me explain why there are 153 fish mentioned, okay? Get this, because you, you, you need to know it. John was a fisherman. John loved to brag about fishing, so John included the number. That's why it's 153. They counted them. The Bible seems full of illogical directions, doesn't it? Throw the net on the other side. Now, that doesn't make any sense. Well, maybe this does. The first will be last, Jesus said. No, no, the first is first. To lead, Jesus says, I must learn to serve. If you want to be a leader, if you want to be God's servant, uh, God's leader, you need to be God's servant first. Learn to serve. Uh, Here's another one. Paul says, when I am weak, I am strong. He is strong in me. So, God is actually glorified when I'm weak instead of when I'm strong. It doesn't seem to make sense. I can't earn my salvation. It's a free gift received by grace through faith. That doesn't make sense. Surely God wants us to help him out a little bit. No, he doesn't need it. His grace is enough. It doesn't seem logical, but it's true. The Indeed magazine, the Indeed devotional that we have out there, they're free. You can grab a copy on the way out on on June 6th. Here's another one. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. That may not hit you. We live 1,500 miles from the nearest relative. We don't see our grandkids. We see them once a year maybe. If we can afford to get there, if we can afford them to get here. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm just saying that when I read this, this, this rips my heart out. Everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. It goes down, Jesus assures us that even though the costs of discipleship are great, they will never outweigh the benefits. We serve him knowing that there is surpassing value in our service and in the rewards we will reap from it. God is no one's debtor. He's extravagant in his promises. The message in this verse is clear. Jesus expects his disciples to leave everything behind. But it's another of the many paradoxes of the, of the gospel. In losing everything, we gain everything and more. I may not get to see my grandchildren take their first step, but I see your children take their first step. I make no bones about it. If your kids are loose, I'm going to love on them. I'm going to be their grandfather because I'm a grandfather in abstention. I'm, I'm a grandfather away who needs to love on a grandchild. Do we base obedience on logic? 
It makes no sense. We follow our logic. Jesus had several of these. Here's another one, the, the, par- the parable of the talents, and there's another one called the parable of the miners. Look at Luke 19, 13. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten miners. That's a, that's a financial uh, coin. That's, that's uh, a amount of money, $1,000. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. And I don't know if a mine is $1,000 in today's. It's just money, okay? He gave them money. He gave him each a $10 bill, a $1,000 bill, fill it in. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. And, and one of them gained five minus for the one. They invested one, they got back five. And, and the Lord rewarded him. And one gained two, and, he, and the Lord rewarded him. And one said, I knew you're a tough guy, and I didn't want to lose it, so I just hit it, and here's your one back. And the Lord called him evil. I mean, we call him smart in today's economy. You put your retirement money in something and it doesn't lose money. You praise the Lord today, don't you? We'd say, oh, that's pretty smart. He didn't lose his money. And the Lord says, no, you evil person, depart from me because I've given you your talent to use. Does it make sense? Do we obey only when it makes sense? There's a movie called Seven Days in Utopia. Kathy and I watched this movie some time ago, and I loved this movie. It's about this golfer who has a meltdown in the midst of a big tournament. And, and after he has this meltdown, he wrecks his car in this weird place in Texas called Utopia. And there's this real unorthodox training there. I, and, and the gospel is pretty clearly given in this movie, and I, and I like a lot of things about this movie. But one of the things I like the most is the guy kept, keeps telling him, hey, paint this picture before you golf. And he says, wait, I don't want to paint this picture and do this and do that. And it's all this unorthodox stuff. And the guy's saying, how will this help me be a golfer? And the Lord keeps saying, I just need you to obey. Don't worry about whether it makes sense right now. Here's the third one. Do we, do we base it on circumstance? Do we base obedience on logic? Do we base obedience on love? Truthfully, that's the last thing that we base it on. That's not how we look at it. Webster's Dictionary says obedience, the definition of obedience from Webster's Dictionary is submissive to the restraint or command of authority. It says you're submissive to the restraint or command. It's something that someone is doing because they're in authority over you. But Jesus uses a very weird word in verse 5. He says he called out to them friends. The word in Greek is paideia. And paideia is never translated friends except here. It's the only time it's translated friends here. Everywhere else it's, it's translated, hey guys, hey boys. If we were English, we would say boys or lads. If we were Irish, maybe we'd say boys. Hey lads, what's, what's going on? Have you any fish? Did you do any, any good today? It's a very friendly, it's a very warm term. It, it's, it's like you're my children. It's, it's like you're my family. Hey family. It's intimate. It's out of place. And because of that, most translators really struggle with this word. But Jesus says, don't you understand it's all about love? It's all about family. John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. And Jesus repeats that with some variation three times in two chapters. When? In John 14, 15, he's going, getting ready to go back to heaven. He's going to the cross. He's going to be buried. He's going to be resurrected. And then he's going to leave. It's the last great teaching he has for the disciples. They're in the upper room. They've just had communion. And he's introduced this whole concept. And he's trying to teach them. What does he teach them? Love me. It's all about love. It's all about love. And John got it because when he writes later in 1 John 2, 5, look at what it says. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete 
in him. Did you get that? If, if anyone obeys God's word, God's love is truly made complete. You want to experience God? Obey God. You want to experience God? Love God. When you love God, you'll obey God. And it's this, it begins this cycle. The more you love him, the more you obey him. The more you obey him, the more you love him. The more you experience him, the more you love him. The more you, you love him, the more you obey him. And it just goes on and on. How do we define obedience? We define it all about circumstances or logic. And the Lord says, I want you to redefine love, uh, obedience by love. The Lord hammers away at this. God's infinite, unparalleled love redefines the way we think, we act, we live, and especially the way we obey. So how can we deepen it? If we've defined obedience, how can we deepen obedience? Go back to John 21, very poignant, very powerful section. John 21, verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Here's the greatest news you'll ever hear. The Bible is all about food. I mean, praise God. I'm, when we get to heaven, there must not be calories because I'm reading about some of the things we're going to be eating in heaven. It's ambrosia, guys. We're going, we're going to have the good stuff. I love it. Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Look at this next phrase. They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, or Jonas, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, what does he say? Feed my sheep. What does he, feed my lambs. What does he say? He says, obey me. Verse 16, and Jesus, again Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. What did he say? Obey me. Verse 17, the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt. Literally, Peter was crushed because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. And then Jesus goes on, I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Now, don't miss this last phrase. Then he said to him, follow me. You want to know how to deepen your obedience? Number one, know who is in authority. They didn't ask who it is. They knew it was the Lord. Know who is in authority. The word Lord means master. It means boss. It means the one in control. And you say, well, wait a second. I thought this was all about love. Absolutely. But Jesus lovingly takes Peter to task. And the Lord says, wait a second. Do you know who I am? They knew it was the Lord. But when Jesus confronts Peter, what does he say to him? Peter, do you know I'm the master? And Peter says, yes, I know. Is that what he says? No. Does he say, Peter, you, you blew it in this assignment. Does he say that? No, he never says that. He says, Peter, do you Love me. I know that he's in in authority because he loves me in spite of the fact that I fail him. I know he's in authority because he shows his grace when I don't deserve it. I know he's in authority because he has the answers that I need. And Jesus hones in when talking with Peter on who or what Peter loves. 
was it that, what was it that Peter loved? Did Peter love the dream of, of defending Jesus with the sword? You know, I, I, I mean, you know, it's like the swashbuckling movies that I saw when I was a kid. And those guys were always, they were always fighting each other with swords. What I thought was great is they would have a 30-minute sword fight and there would be no blood anywhere. I thought that was amazing. They could even stab them through and run them through and pull the knife out and, and the sword out. And the sword didn't have blood on it. I always thought that was so cool. I tried it with my brother. It didn't work that way. But is that what Peter was dreaming about? Was Peter dreaming about this political kingdom that Israel was going to be back on the map, that, that, that they were going to be the new Washington, D.C., that he was going to be right there with the king of kings, that, that Jesus was going to come in on a white stallion instead of a little donkey coming into Jerusalem. He was going to come in on a white stallion, and, and all of Israel was going to come, and they were going to overthrow Rome, and they were going to go around the world, and there was going to be a kingdom. Is that what Peter dreamed of? Did Peter dream that Maybe he would be a pastor of a church in, in Northern California that would have this, this awesome reputation or an, an impact on people and they'd be a lighthouse and, and people would be saved and people, oh no, that's not Peter's dream. Maybe that's my dream. What do you want? Peter, who do you love? Pastor, who do you love? Do you love your dream or do you love me? question I've been asking myself all week long. Who or what do we love? Because what we love is who we serve. What we love is who we serve. Who we love is what we serve. I was in some people's house this week, and, and we were visiting, and, and they have a cat. I, how many of you are dog lovers? Raise your hand. If you love dogs, raise your hand. How many of you are cat lovers? Raise your hand. Pray for these people that just raise their hand. I love cats. We had a great time. But these people said to me, this cat rules our house. And I would have laughed, except we have two dogs that tell us when to get up and when to go to bed. We have two dogs that will come. If we try to put shoes on in the morning and we don't take them for a walk first, you'll have a dog go, I have a breakfast on Thursday mornings that I go to and Kathy walks the dogs and they come in and they look at me and they realize that I'm getting ready and I'm not in my walking shoes. And, and the little black dog will come up and he'll go like, like that. Just throw his paw around and then just walk out like, well, I'm just not going to have anything to do with you. <laughs> Who rules your house? Your, your pet? Your child? Who rules your house? And we can laugh about it. Caesar Milan would come to our house and he would say, you need pack leadership. You, they need to know who the alpha dog is. And I'd say, Kathy, <laughs> we can laugh all about all we want about that, but who rules your house? Who rules your heart? Jesus Christ just wants us to understand who is our shepherd, our leader, the one who loves us so much that he would never lead us somewhere that would be harmful to us. I love Psalm, and you say this is a New Testament thing. It's not. Look at Psalm 119.34. Give me understanding, the psalmist is writing. Psalm 119, this huge psalm, and this jewel is right in the middle. Give me understanding, and I will keep your law and obey it. If it stopped right there, it wouldn't be that remarkable. But look at what it says. Give me understanding, and I will keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Give me understanding, and I will obey your law, and uh, keep your law and obey it, because I love you, is what he's saying. Know who is in authority. Number two, respond immediately. Respond immediately. Because Jesus is speaking to Peter. 
And he said, Peter, do you remember when I, when I, and he doesn't say this in words, but he's saying it with what's going on. Do you remember when I called you? I said, follow me. Do you remember when I said this was going to be a pivotal, pivotal point in your life, that you pivot and you're going to change forever? Do you remember that? This is part of that, Peter. Peter, do you love me? And Peter's crushed. The Lord says, I need you to do something. I need you to do it now. Ever had a time when immediate, unquestioned, complete obedience is a matter of life and death? Have you ever had a police officer say, freeze? Have you ever had one say that to you? I've told some people I worked in a bank, and uh, the manager didn't set the alarm at night, and I thought that the alarm was set, and so I unset it. I did the whole thing and unset it and opened the vault, and just about the time I did that, I heard somebody say, freeze, Turned out the manager had not set the alarm, so instead of turning the alarm off, I turned it on, and then I opened the safe. Not a good thing to do in a bank. Police officer happened to be cruising through. He came in. He had his shotgun leveled at me, and he said, freeze. Well, there was no, and I said, in my pocket, there is a wallet, and you can see in my wallet, I have a card from the bank. I am an employee of the bank, but I wasn't going for my wallet. I wasn't saying, here, let me get this out for you. When he said freeze, guess what? Until he said unfreeze, it wasn't Simon Says freeze, it was just freeze. Uh, A child is running into traffic. Stop. Do you want them to argue with you? Do you want them to go ahead and get that ball, or do you want them to stop? You're, you're on the surgeon's table, and, and they've got you maybe numbed but not drugged, and you hear the doctor say, scalpel, and they get a sponge. Are you happy about that? He gets something, a retractor rather than a, a scalpel. I mean, when a, when a surgeon is calling for an instrument, it's, it could be life and death. You want somebody to respond immediately. Do we respond that way when the, when the Lord says to us, uh, pray continually? Well, you know, Lord, my schedule... I'm so busy. I have these kids to, uh, you know, if you just understood how busy, uh, we'll get back to you later, Lord. Do we respond that way when the Lord says, given it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, Luke 6, 38. Do we do that when the Lord says, give? Do we, do we immediately draw out our wallet and say, here, Lord, just take everything, just take the whole thing. Is that the way we give? Do we respond immediately? No. Would you continue to reveal yourself to someone who didn't do the things that they asked you to do? Would you continue to come and experience time with them if they were disobedient to you? Especially if they loved you so incredibly. There's a story in the Old Testament again of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham has waited 24 years. God has said to Abraham, you will have a son. I'm going to give you a son. And Abraham tried his own trick with Hagar. That was a horrible fiasco. That was a horrible catastrophe. And the Lord finally, after 24, 25 years, gives him Isaac, and Isaac is born to him, and, and he's thrilled. He's 100 years old, and he has his first son, and God said, I'm going to make you the father of many nations, and, and he's thinking, 100 years old, this is, you know, Lord, you could hurry this along if you want to, but he waits on the Lord, and he finally gets the son, and the son grows up, and he gets to the teenage years, and the Lord says, take your son, Genesis 22. Two and three. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Wow, why don't you just stab me and twist the knife? Take your son, your only son, the one I promised you, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. The region of Moriah, there's a mount there. We call it Jerusalem. 
sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about early the next morning. Oh, wait, wait a second. Did you get that? He says, take your son early the next morning. Abraham didn't say, Lord, you promised me this son. Abraham did not say, Lord, can we talk about this? Lord, Abraham did not say, what about your covenant with me? What about your promise about the many nations? What about the 24 years plus the extra 12 or 13 years? What about all of that? He never says that. Early the next morning he gets up and he takes his son. And it's one of the most powerful, most dramatic lessons God can give us. Because as he's walking up the mountain. His son is old enough to realize that he's seen his father give sacrifices before, and he says, Father, you've brought the wood and you've brought the fire. Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God himself will provide the sacrifice. I don't even think Abraham knew that one day Jesus Christ would go to the cross and he would stretch out his arms and say, Father, I am the sacrifice. But when they get to the top, Abraham at 113, there's no chance, or 114, there's no chance that he could bind his son. So he says to his son, crawl up on the altar. It says he bound his hands and his feet, and he pulled the knife to slay his son. And God stopped him. Would we be willing to respond immediately when the cost is that high? Know who's in authority, respond immediately, and the third one is repeat, repeat. I've been told that on some shampoo, it's not that I use a lot of shampoo. I've been told on some shampoo there are directions, and this is what the directions say. Wet hair, apply shampoo, rinse, repeat. If those four things are really there, when do you stop? Because when you get to the fourth one, you have to go back and start all over again, and you would never, ever get done with the cycle. So I think they mean to do it twice. I, I, I think that's interesting. I try not to wash my hair twice because both of them might fall out, and then I'd have none. That would be a bad deal. But when, we've, when we have done what the Lord has asked us to do, he wants us to do it again. Do it again. Do it again. Do it again. You say, well, pastor, I don't see that. Look at the very last verse that we just read. Look back at at John 21, 19. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death. Peter is saying, hey, Lord, you know I love you. And and the Lord says to him, right now you have the the ability to choose. One day you won't know, you you won't have the ability to choose. Someone else is going to dress you and lead you out. And you're going to be, I think Jesus is saying to Peter, you're going to be executed on my behalf. You're going to be martyred for me. But then he says to him, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. The Greek is in the present tense. It has the the impact of keep on following me. Follow, follow, follow. Keep on following. Don't stop now. Come on. The deeper experience comes from repeated obedience. Going back to Psalm 119 again where we saw that jewel a minute ago. It says, teach me, O Lord, to follow your decrees. Then I will keep them to the end. And again, the, the Hebrew, the, the impact of that is, I'm not going to stop until, uh, until I'm there. Lord, I'm, I'm going to keep them till the very end, until the end of my life, until the end of the time, until the end that you come and get me, until the very end. Will we follow him? Have you ever been around someone who loves the Lord so much that they just obey him over and over and over and over again? 
I've been blessed that way. I was raised in a Christian home. My father uh, was a pastor. When I was just a little boy, I was born in Knoxville, Tennessee, and my father was in a, in a church there, and it was a very rough time, and he had me literally just as a baby in his arms, and one of the men who was really crosswise with the, my father came up and hit my father in the face with his fist and knocked him down. My dad fell but made sure that he, did, that he cradled me so that I didn't fall out of his arms and did not get back up and hit the man who was a deacon in the church. And it was a horrible time for my father. When I was 13 months old, he was called to another church, and he took the church, and, and the Lord blessed the church, and, and the Lord took care of the situation. But I've been blessed to see a father who loved me so much and showed his love. And time after time, I can't even begin to tell you the number of times that my father knew that somebody didn't have food, and we, were, we didn't have a lot of money as a pastor, and, and there were six children, and he would give them some of our grocery money to make sure that they had food. And, and we would go down, and we would shovel the driveways because Dad said, these people, they're part of our church, and they can't afford. You'd go down there, and don't you take any money from them. And I, and I really wanted to help my father realize that they needed to understand they needed to pay for work that was done. But I, he would never let, he would always say, did you take money? No, Dad, I didn't take money. If you took money, take it back. No, I didn't take money. And he showed me how to obey. My father's life verses, 1 Corinthians 4.1, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. And when we're faithful and obedient in a little, God gives us so much more. How can we deepen our obedience? Yesterday, I was at the Relay for Life, and I'll close with this. As we were at the Relay for Life, uh, something happened in, in the morning, and, and it's called the Survivor's Walk, and they, they do this lap, and, and uh, there was someone who got up and gave a testimony of what had happened in, in a course of 12 or 14 years as this man has had cancer over and over and over again and had chemo number number of times. And he said, I've watched the survivors go from 30 to over 500 in this area, this cancer survivors who are still alive after going through these treatments. And, and Karen Marker was there, and she talked to this one lady who had a, a bald head and a big, huge scar, just had a, a brain surgery for brain cancer, and, and it's the, I think it was the fifth time that they've been through this. And, and I listened to other stories, and I heard one person talk about 12 rounds of chemotherapy. I just can't, just can't even fathom that. It just breaks my heart to, to hear that pain that comes from that. And, and as I was listening to them and, and, and I was watching them and, and I was hearing their story and they were celebrating the fact that they, they had gone through this process and they, they had re, re, achieved the point that they're in remission and, and they're, they're going and walking forward and, and I'm listening to the stories and my heart's breaking and, and I'm hearing all of this and it's almost sensory overload to, to know that there's so much pain and struggle and agony. And at the same time, they're playing this real upbeat music and, and I'm, I'm watching as we're walking around this track over and over and over again and people would stop in front of the music and they'd begin to dance and they would sing and they would... And they would clap each other on the back, and there was this smile and this joy, and I thought, how could they have so much joy in the midst of pain? How could they possibly do that? And I went up to pray in the evening, and I watched one of the women who came up. She was not to be on the diet. She, she had nothing to do with the program. She just came up to the person who was scheduling all this and organizing this, and, and I went up to, to announce myself, and this woman was there and had her arms around her, and she said, I would do anything, 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 because my six-year-old 
is cancer-free. And we celebrated one year yesterday that my six-year-old is cancer-free. And I love you, and I love MD Imaging, and I love your organization, and I love what's happened, and I love the doctor, and she's listening all, all these things. This was a moment that these two women were having. And this woman who had her arm around her said, I understand I have children. And they were crying, and they were loving on each other. And I thought, if we understood how much God had done for us, we would never, ever say, Lord, I don't want to obey you. We would say, I love you. I will do anything for you. Let's pray. Father, we come into your presence, and we've experienced your worship, your glory, your adoration. We've experienced, Father, when we've opened our life to it, your grace and your love. And you have called us to live differently. Father, you've called us not to be a church that, that gives begrudgingly or witnesses guiltily or sings half-heartedly. You've called us to be a people. You've called us individually, each of us, Father, to experience your love in such a way that it just explodes out of us. Father, you love me so much. I give you everything that I am. And everything I ever have and everything I will ever be. Lord, you know all things. And you know I love you. And I will feed your sheep. And I'll be your shepherd here. And we will be your people. Father, as you speak to the hearts of each person here, may they know you. May they experience your love. And out of that love, may they never, ever be the same. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.